Hi everyone and welcome back to my podcast. This is Amanda. Um, if this is your first time here, hi and welcome. And if it's not, thank you so much for coming back. Um, all right, so I'm just going to kind of jump right into it. So if you have not listened to part one of this series yet, uh, go ahead and check it out. It's all about about the history of the criminal justice system and how it links into politics. Um, it's super interesting. I would definitely check it out if you're able to. Um, anyway, so in this episode, uh, we're first going to talk about bail, cash bail, and then I'm going to be talking about public defenders. And lastly, I will be interviewing a current, um, defense attorney and previous public defender, Amanda Score. So stay tuned. Let's start off by discussing exactly what bail is, or more specifically, cash bail. Cash bail is payments that allow someone accused of a crime to leave jail while they wait months or years for their cases to go to court. Um, In exchange for payment to the court, defendants can wait for trials in the comfort of their own home. So basically what that means is that you pay money um, and you can get out of jail and wait for your trial at your house. But obviously if you don't have that money, you have to stay behind bars. So bail amounts vary widely with a nationwide average of about $10,000 for felonies, um, but even less for misdemeanors. However, even lower bail amounts are way more than people can pay. Um, So basically for some statistics here, 78% of working Americans live paycheck to paycheck and more than 25% of workers do not set aside savings every month for big um, for emergency fees, such as bail, um, which is why 60%, and that's a very conservative um, estimate. I've also read sources that say it's closer to 90%. Um, It really depends on um, what you're looking at, but 67% of those people behind bars um, are actually just awaiting trial, and those periods of incarceration in the United States um, can last weeks, days, months, um, sometimes even years. Um, okay, first let's talk about bail. So the cash bail system in America is essentially a super classes system that really only benefits the rich. Bail is payment required for a person to be released from jail as they await court hearings. Um, bail amounts vary widely with a nationwide average of around $10,000 for felonies and less for misdemeanors, but even lower amounts are more than most people can pay. Um, so a lot of people spend time in jail for lack of $500 or even sometimes $250. And since I'm pretty sure that America's policy is innocent until proven guilty, that means potentially people are sitting in jail just because they are poor. Um, That itself is unconstitutional, not to mention the long-term impacts that come with being in jail for long periods of time. As people who cannot afford bail sit in jail and await their court hearings, they are subjected to the everyday violence of American jails, as as well as dangerous conditions, medical neglect, and most of them lose their jobs and housing, which further fuels the cycle of poverty. In addition to that, prisoners who must stay in jail because they can't afford bail have a higher chance of being convicted. 
Low-income people are often subject to the most unfair justice system, especially when it comes to the money bail industry, which routinely exploits people, disproportionately people of color, in spite of their situations. Not to mention the for-prop bail industry, which, ugh, do not even get me started. Definitely look into that um, because I could talk about it for way longer than this. But it's a $2 billion industry, and it essentially takes money from the poorest Americans and puts it in the pockets of the rich by paying off people's bail and then charging them interest on it so they can pay it off over a long period of time. It's essentially like a middleman to this cash bail crisis. Yes, I call it a crisis because it is. Um, nearly 11 million people are admitted into jails across the country each year simply because they're unable to afford their bail. Um, that's just freaking insane. Like, I can't believe that we live in a country that promotes equal justice under the law, quote unquote, and innocent until proven guilty, but we th- put people in jail simply because they can't afford to pay money and get out. Like, that's so ridiculous. Um, there's a quote by, and I hope he's, I'm saying his name right, um, Udi Uber, and he's the director of campaign for Smart Justice at the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, he said a quote which really sticks out to me, and it says, money bail, the, excuse me, the money bail system is one of the most corrupt and broken parts of our justice system. We as Americans can do better than this, and we must get rid of cash bail. I mean, it's ridiculous that we live in a system that promotes paying your way out, essentially. Of course, you have to go back to your hearings, and if you're wondering... Um, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself like, oh, well, they need to show back up to trial. Um, actually, because D.C. got rid of cash bail and they actually had higher rates. That's right. You heard that correctly. They had higher rates of people showing back up to court after they were released. Essentially, one big form of cash bail reform, which I think would be super effective, would be to... Uh, rate prisoners on a scale um essentially of the violent nature of their crime uh other aspects and um use that to decide whether they stay behind bars or um go out and get to go home and get to um prepare their case and all that sort of thing um of course that's not going to solve discrimination that's not going to solve all of these issues but i think it's a step in the right direction I really don't think that we can allow America to be a place where we let people who have more money get out of jail and prepare their case because studies have shown that people who don't have to wait inside of jail for their case, they actually have higher rates of not being convicted um, because they don't have to try to communicate with their public defender through um, a jail cell, which has been proven to be pretty ineffective um so yeah I ultimately think that cash bail is one of the most broken parts of our criminal justice system and um we really need to get rid of it one to help the overpopulation in our prisons um but it will also dramatically improve millions of lives because they will stop trying to um make bail or not bail um oh what's the word I'm looking for um um, plea deals, 
um, and they won't incarcerate as many people and it will save lots of time and resources and it's super important that we at least look at reforming the cash bail system. All right, next let's talk about public defenders or lack thereof, honestly. Um, Right now, America is facing a constitutional crisis um, because of its lack of public defenders. So now I'm going to get into some statistics. I know I'm sure everyone loves when I spew statistics. Um, But yeah, so the U.S. Department of Justice reports that 82% of prisoners are in need of a public defender. So based on the amount of people that we know are being arrested and going into jail every single day or every year, that's a lot of people. Plus, that's an incredibly high percent, um, which further proves the distinct um, correlation between poverty and crime, which I'll get into in another episode. But the Justice Policy Institute reports that the national standard for cases for public defenders is 150 for felonies. And based off of that criteria, that means that only 27% of attorney offices are meeting that criteria. And that's directly hurting the people that they're supposed to protect. And it's not really their fault. So essentially what happens is when you go to law school, of course, everybody knows it's expensive, costs a lot of money to take the bar, to go to law school. It takes a lot of time, all of that. Once you come out of it, you're faced with this really difficult choice, which is you either become a public defender, they don't make a lot of money, um, or you work for corporate law and you make a lot of freaking money. So basically, you can either pay off your debt or you can help society, basically. Um, And the lawyer that I spoke to later on in this episode, she actually talked about how sometimes... um, they'll like say that they'll pay off your debt if you work for the state for X amount of years. And sometimes that doesn't even happen. Um, So yeah, so it's really inaccessible for a lot of people to become public defenders. Um, So a lot of them are overworked, um, which means that they cannot represent their clients um, as well as they want to, which leads to more people being charged, more people in prison, et cetera, et cetera. It's really like a long um, chain of events. And It is guaranteed in our constitution the right to defense. Obviously, the law is incredibly complicated and scary. And there's a reason that lawyers have to go to jail for, or not jail, sorry, school for, what, three years to learn all the ins and outs of it. But there are not enough public defenders to defend the amount of people being arrested. Um, That leads to situations like in Kentucky, where I remember... I saw a video of this. I don't know if this, if I saw the video in Kentucky, but um, I know for a fact what happened in Kentucky was 50 defendants stood in a line and they all pled guilty like one after another, Um, but they were all represented under one public defender. And so I would say that it's virtually impossible that that public defender knew everything about those 50 defendants. Um, And I firmly believe that people's story is really important when you are speaking in front of a judge to kind of explain, you know, what happened, why it happened, those sort of things. And when you don't have a lawyer that stands up there and is able to advocate for you um, because you can't afford one, it's really detrimental and you end up going to jail, which really affects you in the long run, um, mentally, physically, and economically for the rest of your life. Um, So 
yeah, overall, like, I just think it's uh, it's really unethical and irresponsible. And this is not the public defender's fault. Like, keep that in mind. It is um, just evidence of a broken system, kind of. Um, but it's just sad to, like, hear all these stories of people who just didn't have equal representation in the courtroom because you know that if you're wealthy, um, you're not going to face that same discrimination because you're going to be able to get your own lawyer who can spend, you know, however many hours they need to on your case whereas public defenders have so much on their time or on their plate it often has really detrimental consequences um the new york Times, the new york times reports that 97 percent of federal cases in night in 94 percent of state cases end in a plea deal so this is because and i'm sure if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I would never plead guilty for something that I didn't do. Well, if you're sitting in jail dealing with the mental trauma that comes with being in an American prison, um, which I'll talk about in my next episode, plus you're away from your family, you don't have a job, like all these different elements, like, and they tell you like you can either fight the system and go to court and it's going to take you know, two, three more years before you get to see a trial and it's all these complicated things or do you just want to plead guilty and get out and we'll leave you alone? And that's one big thing that that really affects is voter voter disenfranchisement. Sorry, I definitely butchered that word, but you guys know what I mean. Because if you have a felony, you can't vote. And I think that that is another just piece to this broken puzzle because... If you can't vote, how are you supposed to vote for candidates that support criminal justice reform? You've been through the system. You'd be one of the best people to advocate for it. But um, whatever, that's a different argument for a different time. But basically, because these public defenders are so overworked, oftentimes they encourage people to take plea deals to save them the time and hassle to save their defendant. their client all the time and hassle um so yeah more people deserve their day in court it's guaranteed to us by the constitution again um and at the end of the day really this crisis is breaking our criminal justice system when you mix the bail crisis with the public defenders crisis you really start to understand why there's more um where the majority of people in jail are in the lower income bracket not to mention that that disproportionately affects people of color and all of these are pieces to this sort of broken puzzle and to understand it you have to understand you know that we have cash bail that allows some people to get out of jail and talk with their lawyers and go to the crime scene themselves or whatever they need to do whereas you know some people have to stay behind bars and we really see this with the um pandemic um But overall, this crisis is really just breaking our system even further. And it's really important to talk about and to support um, candidates in your local election. I know I talk a lot about politics, but like especially with this, like support local candidates that want criminal justice reform. It's so, so, so important. And one of the most important things that you can vote for. Um, So, yeah, this crisis is ultimately breaking the system.
All right, now into the best part of the podcast. Let's hear from a former public defender and current um, defense attorney, Amanda Score. Okay, um, before we get started, actually, into um, Amanda's interview, I just wanted to point out that I had a lot more um, of our interview, but it deleted. (laughs) But I really liked um, the ending part that we had, so I'm just going to put that in there. Um, Sorry that I deleted (laughs) um, some of the earlier questions but yeah I like the ending and so I'm sorry and I hope you guys enjoy is there one case in particular that you like remember that made a really big impact on you or um I've had lots of cases I think that have impacted me um I my biggest case was a multi-day homicide trial where we um a confession all the way up through the Supreme Court and was able to get the confession thrown out. Um, so obviously that sort of thing sticks with you. Um, I would say in general, though, it's just the realization, I think, cumulatively over the years that there's a whole lot of people out there struggling and that there's always more to the story. And the, and the amount of people in the criminal justice system suffering from mental health issues or stuff like that is is so much larger, I think, than people realize. Yeah, definitely. Um, Do you believe that the criminal justice system, I mean, specifically in Appleton, since that's where you mainly practice, do you believe that it's fair? I know fair is kind of a hard, like, weird word to use, but, like, do you see a lot of disparities, or do you think, for the most part, it's, like, pretty progressive in the way that it's run? Um, You know, there's always room for improvement, right? Um, and, and it's always something that you can and should be improved on. Do I think like we're the worst in the country? Of course not. I don't, I don't think it's like that, but is there racial disparity happening here? Absolutely. You know, um, I've seen cases where kids, you know, kids running around with airsoft guns, um, just like my brother and his friends did when they were kids, you know, they were white boys and nobody called the cops or was upset about it. And, you know, if you have a group of minority children doing that, all of a sudden the cops get called on it, Um, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, So it it absolutely definitely happens, you know, uh, unfortunately, what do we do about that is a much harder question to answer. And, and how do you fix that? Um, I listened to the uh, chief of police in Appleton give his statement when uh, the riots all started happen- happening. And I guess what struck me was that he made a big deal about the fact that their, their officers go to something like five hours of training for racial disparity issues and an implicit bias, which is bias that you don't necessarily know that you have, but still causes you to act in certain ways. And um, he sounded very proud of that five hours. And my thought was like, we teach children, you know, how to do the square dance for longer than five hours. <laughs> like, that is not a lot of training. I, I think 
to be proud of that fact is, you know, five hours a month, maybe five, you know, Mm -hmm. then you could be proud of that. But to say we did, you know, they get five hours of training on that subject is, is very, very little when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. And probably not enough for, for an average person to understand even what implicit bias is, let alone what theirs personally are and how to overcome them or deal with them. You can't do that in a five-hour lecture. Yeah. So, um, those are the kind of things that people need to understand. Like, I, I, I don't, I think people think that they're running around saying, you know, we have all these racist cops. And the thing that you need to understand is, is that I don't know that they're overtly, you know, they're not, you know, we're not hiring members of the KKK, right? Right. For the most part, and obviously there are exceptions, but mm-hmm. what we need to start realizing is, is that there is implicit biases built in. Like as, as one judge once said to me, you know, the problem is, is that the African-American population sometimes ends up going to prison for things that white people don't. And some of that has to do with because the last judge sent them to prison. And so if they went to prison last time, you gotta send them again. And then that cycle just keeps going and to stop and, and figure out what do we need to do to break that sort of thing. Um, are the solutions that we need to talk about. And some of that is recognizing that, right? Or or changing things like no-knock warrants and, um, you know, yeah. what someone can be pulled over for. Yeah, absolutely. Have you, like, personally seen the disparities in terms of, like, race in correlation to sentences? Like, do people... Is that somewhere where you see a lot of, like, in addition to just policing and, like, going to prison in general, like, do you oftentimes see that, like, lower income people get sentenced longer? So that is a complicated question to answer, too. When you go to sentencing and the judge is looking at the character of somebody and that person has a job um, and, a, and an education and all these things, those are all the reasons the judge gives for reasons to give them shorter sentences, right? So if you have someone who has substance abuse issues or mental health issues or poverty for any reason and they come before the judge, um, and I can't say all those good things, like they have a job and all of that, mm-hmm. of course they're going to get more time than the other person who, who comes in and, you know, they have a job therefore they have money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but what is the solution to that and how do you change it? It has to do with, you know, creating, maybe investing our money in less prisons and jails to lock people up and more in treatment to help them deal with really what is the underlying issue that is causing them to commit their crimes repeatedly, especially when you're talking nonviolent people or people with addiction issues and and we're talking possession of drugs and that sort of thing. Um, And and there's been a push to do that obviously over the last few years with things like treatment courts that have Mm -hmm. popped up, but we still have a long ways to go. Yeah, definitely. It's like, especially recently, but like in the last year, have you seen a turnaround in like sentencing and, and things like that, especially when it relates to substance abuse problems? Or do you think it's pretty much still the same? Well, it depends on what county you're talking about and what kind of resources are available to the people. I will tell you that when I look at cases of people in rural northern counties, there is there is no such thing as 
inpatient AODA treatment, treatment facilities in some of those counties, there was an access to them. So things are very different than here where we have multiple treatment facilities and, and ways to get funding to go to those treatment facilities. Um, it's not unlimited by any stretch of the imagination here, of course, uh, but there's more than there is other places. And so that all factors into it. Um, so like when you compare statistics, even just across the state, you're really comparing apples and oranges. Um, and that's a problem that the smaller counties run into all the time. Um, or even things like access to public transportation. You know, we have a bus system in Appleton. Not every city does, right? Right. And that makes a huge difference to what kind of resources people who don't have um, large or any incomes can take advantage of. And the logistics of taking advantages of the resources that are there is not equal, even throughout the state. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. Speaking of like things being equal. So earlier in this episode, I talked a little bit about cash bail. Um, mm -hmm. What reforms do you think would be effective in terms of like fixing the cash bail system? Yeah, so uh, that's a discussion that's happened, I think, since the beginning of time and is always something that's being discussed um, in the criminal justice system. Um, so they've tried things like putting people on alcohol monitoring bracelets. I think that that would go a long way. A lot of people are on bails for things like OWIs. And if you can monitor and know, okay, this person is drinking, we need to go get them now before you know, they get in the car again or something, but, but, mm -hmm. but making those economically feasible and equally available to everybody is a whole nother question, right? Um, there's just not enough money and not enough people in the world to, to deal with all the people that go through with that, but that's a step in the right direction. And um, I think bigger, and I really think the the focus, if we could focus more on the mental health system and fixing, making it so that you don't have to commit a crime before they can help you with your mental health issues would go a long way. And making the default not to, to drag them into jail, but to take them to a crisis center um, and not a hospital, you know, taking them to hospitals is a short-term fix, not a long-term fix. So hooking them up with the resources for long-term fixes um, would go a long, long way in, in reforming some of those things um, so that there's just more available to the people who need it um, and, and solutions and, and help in the right way for people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. I think I've obviously statistics and like people's stories are two different things, but I've read a lot about like the amount of people in jails just because of mental health issues and that just seems like really ineffective mm -hmm. right and I, I get told that all the time by family members well they they told us they can't do anything until he gets in trouble or you know like probation will help him sort out his mental health and, and really that's not what probation is meant for it's it shouldn't be a mental health treatment plan um right. but unfortunately that's what ends up happening in a lot of situations when you're talking about adults with mental health issues who really are still dependent on their family, but their families can't do much for them because they're adults and, and there's a whole cycle there, right? Um, and so they ha have to wait and get the criminal justice system involved and that's not really what it was meant for. Right, no, absolutely. Um, 
sort of like moving on from the aspect of like the system itself um how has being like a younger woman in law like how has that impacted your experience being in a field that is predominantly or I assume is still predominantly men yeah um so anecdotal what I you know again I don't know the statistics off the top of my head but yes there are still more guy lawyers than lady lawyers and it's certainly that's true I believe in the criminal defense field um um and bless you for calling me a, a young lady I, I love it <laughs> made my day but certainly when I started I was definitely I you know I graduated and started practicing law when I was 24 so oh my gosh I was definitely young um uh, you have to learn to have a thick skin quick um and and it's not for everybody and that's okay I mean there's people who who come out try to do this and, and figure out you know maybe it's not for them that doesn't make them bad people doesn't even make them bad lawyers just means maybe they're not right for this line of of lawyering um because it does you know we spend a lot of our day dealing with difficult people on a whole spectrum of of things um um and, and you got to learn how to separate and not take stuff personally, especially when you're dealing with someone who might be mentally ill or addicted or, or has been, you know, screwed by the system. So they don't trust it. And I'm just another part of that. And I, so I go into it understanding that, I guess, that mm-hmm. I, I don't expect my clients to trust me from day one. They don't know me. Why would they? Um, and that that's something I have to earn from them. I think that helps a great deal. Um, it is not something that you walk out of law school being able to do or something that I'm even able to do every day this far into it. It's something I always am working on. You know, it's, it's you don't take things personally and, and learning to draw the boundaries and the lines of what my role is as their lawyer and not I'm, you know, their therapist or their mom or their, you know, yeah. I, I'm not those things. I'm their lawyer and I'm here to help them with the, their case and, and the, the law as it relates to their case. Um, and, and sticking to those lines can go a long way um, in, in stopping burnout from this sort of thing. And also rolling with the, you know, Voicing when I feel, especially if if we're talking other professionals um, in the males and, you know, reminding them sometimes that it is not the same for them as it is for us. You know, a a guy lawyer doesn't have to deal with, you know, clients hitting on them to the same level. And, And of course, some of them do sometimes, but it is not the same level that women do. And it's all women, in my experience, who practice in this field. It will happen to them at some point or another. Somebody will say something inappropriate to them. Um or more and it happened and learning what do you do with that um and when is it a big deal and when isn't it a big deal and and again learning not to take it too personally <laughs> like uh, it goes a long way but also educating the the other professionals around like like this is a thing that absolutely happens that we have to deal with that you don't so cut us some slack sometimes um you know, like that's an added layer of things or, or having people take you seriously. Like that was a big thing when I first started, you know, I would get asked, so when you graduate from law school or when you start law school, I, you're like, well, I, I did actually. And here's my bar card. I passed the bar exam. I'm a, I promise you I'm a real lawyer. And a, a lot of that too is, it, um, 
feeling confident and also feeling confident to when someone asks you a question to not just try to come up with an answer immediately, but but stepping back and when I didn't know the answer saying, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I will find out and let you know. And and putting the putting the brakes on to not just spout out the first answer that came to my head, because that's a good way to get yourself in trouble really quick. But to recognize I had a lot to learn too. And communicating that that way, I think goes a long way. And recognizing your own limitations. You know, I know there's certain kinds of cases that I prefer to handle versus other kinds of cases. And, and you know, sticking with that on my end goes a long way too. Um, but I think it also helps too, like you can, you can be assertive and aggressive. Um, and, you know, some people might call that bitchy or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's what makes you good at this kind of job. Um, yeah, absolutely. Not worrying about that. Like, I don't worry about that. If, if I'm assertive or aggressive, it means I'm doing my job. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And well, I think I that. Yeah, so. I, I definitely, I think you're super incredible. And I honestly find you such an inspiration in everything that you do. I, I'm, lucky, I'm lucky in a lot of ways, so. And you're good at what you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last question that I have to kind of wrap it up is, do you have any advice for people either looking to get involved in criminal justice reform or aspiring lawyers? Yeah. So uh, as, as far as aspiring lawyers go, especially if you're talking high school and undergrad aged people, um, I, I harp on my, my own kids about this. I was a theater nerd and a forensics nerd and a, a mock trial nerd as a kid and no matter um and yeah that ended up in me becoming a lawyer but no matter what you do in life the ability to speak in public it can only be to your benefit and it's such a skill it's such a rare skill that people have that someone who possesses it it just opens up so many doors to you um that aren't otherwise open so if you can get involved in be it theater or mock trial or anything that makes you have to get up in front of people and talk or sing or dance or play an instrument, um, so band or anything where you have to perform, um, can no matter what you do in life, that will be a benefit to you. Um, so that's my advice. Don't worry so much about learning what the law is or anything like that, but learn how to talk to people and communicate to people. Um, and the more people you talk to and communicate with, the better you get at it. Um, so no matter what you choose to do, but definitely if you want to be a lawyer, this kind of lawyer, uh, I mean, because in theory, I have to public speak every time I walk in a courtroom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I meet new people every single day I show up to work. I have to talk to someone I don't know. So the ability to do that is huge. Um, so just keep, so to join those kind of clubs and focus on that kind of thing um, can go a long, long way. Communication, huge, huge, huge. Um, as far as criminal justice reform, oh, I wish I had a good answer to that. And and um, I struggle with it myself a lot. I, I struggle with feelings of I have I, I have been given this platform where I, I should be able to help make those kind of changes. And, and am I doing enough? Do I do enough? Do I do enough to check my own implicit biases? And I think just being aware of them is step one, um, but not forgetting, like not letting this die down, the conversation we're having die down, I think is important. And that doesn't, 
I'm, I, I'm not going to comment on riding versus not riding and all of that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but keeping the conversation going is huge. And it is a hard conversation to have. And it's a hard conversation to have with generate the other generations above yourselves, even above myself, uh, you know, that it's, it's not easy and it's not easy to change people's minds, especially the older they get sometimes. Um, but to keep trying, um, it's big. And I think recognizing that we aren't all similarly situated and, and, and so don't pretend like we are, I guess. Like I try to recognize the gifts and and the things that I've been given, but then to use them to help others, um, can, you know, recognize what your talents are, um, and use them to the way to help other people and don't try to use things that maybe aren't your wheelhouse, right? Like if your wheelhouse Mm -hmm. isn't, isn't public speaking, then there are other ways to help people that don't involve that. But to, to try to recognize what 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 talents you do have and, and putting them to use for education purposes goes a long way. And, the, you know, because the louder the voice, the more likely the change, right? Yeah, absolutely. The more, the more of us talking about it, the louder the voices. So I, yeah. I think the conversation is is the big piece. Keep it going. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this with me and for all sure. the wonderful insight. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> I was pretty flattered. <laughs> <laughs>